This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. They want that adventure and they want they want a bit of that risk. I mean, because going into the mountains is risky. There's just no doubt. Like there's just a lot of things you can't control with weather and um, terrain. And I don't think anyone fully goes in there and says, you know, zero risk experience because <laughs> that's just not possible this is delivering adventure welcome to the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends your family and as a profession my name is chris capio and i'm coming to you from whistler british columbia and i'm Jordy shepherd recording from canmore alberta After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we are joined by Sarah Hunikin. Sarah is a certified ACMG Alpine guide and a pro athlete. She's also a guide trainer and examiner with the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. Her achievements include first ascents of Niagara Falls with Will Gad and many other first ascents of new ice and mixed routes in Japan, China, Iceland, Africa, and North America, and rock routes in Newfoundland and Baffin Island. Sarah was the first North American woman to climb an M11-12 13, and 14. She was also the World Cup North American Ice Champion for 2013, 2014, and 2015, and this is just a few of her many accomplishments. Today, Sarah's going to share some of her insights on adventure from the perspective of being an elite climber, my words, not hers, and an experienced guide. What we really wanted to explore with Sarah is what it takes to deliver a life of adventure to yourself and others. Sarah's had a long career so far, and we wanted to see what some of her key insights were so that hopefully our listeners can do the same. Jordy, you know Sarah pretty well. Before you tell us a little bit more about Sarah, can you give us some context to some of her accomplishments? For example, for someone who doesn't know, what does an M14 even look like? So Chris, just to describe uh, Sarah, when you meet her physically, she is quite quite an intimidating looking person because she is so strong looking. She has muscles on muscles, and uh, just just incredible, uh, incredibly strong person. Uh, and then you get to know her, and you realize just how caring and incredibly strong she is on the inside. And uh, yeah, she's just like the perfect mix of of all of that. Um, yeah, just an incredible person. Uh, and to speak to the M14, so mixed mixed climbing grades, uh, which I don't climb to that level, uh, anywhere near that, um, and I, I don't think I aspire to, even though I'm a mountain guide, check out the climbing documentary, The Alpinist, with Marc-Andre Leclerc. Go to the scene where he's mixed climbing on the Stanley Headwall, and this will give you a great feel for what hard mixed climbing looks like. And yes, Marc-Andre is soloing there, he doesn't have a rope. But it's uh, which is uh, taking things to another level, 
um, in terms of mental headspace, but uh, really like it's the kind of thing where even if you are not a climber, you should get sweaty palms over that. Okay, that's great, Jordy. Thanks for that. Well, let's bring in Sarah into the DA studio. And by the way, Sarah has warned us that she is being joined by her dog. So if you hear any moaning or other strange sounds, her dog is likely the culprit. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jordy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so where are you calling in from right now? I am calling in from Camor, Alberta. Um, after a lot of rain, looking outside, hoping to get out there again while it's still sunny. <laughs> yeah, I heard it was stormy in town there. Yeah, some really good storms, but it's nice. We need it, so we keep them coming. I'm down in Invermere right now, and it's it's been windy, but pretty nice day overall. So we'll start with asking you how you define adventure. I guess to define adventure would be something you don't know the end result of. <laughs> I guess it starts with the curiosity and um, has an element of unknown. I guess the combination of unknown and curiosity would be an adventure of any sort, really. You're a pro athlete. Uh, you're sponsored. Um, you're a guide and a guide trainer. You train Alpine guides and, and rock guides. What do you think it means to live a life of delivering adventure? Well, I guess it's a fine balance because if you enjoy adventure yourself, you're seeking it for yourself often. And, um, but to deliver it for others, you really have to be focused on what that person wants to experience it as, as adventure for themselves, right? It's not about you that day when you're out guiding or taking someone else out. So, um, I think it's trying to get yourself in someone else's, um, not in their mind, but in, in their wants and, and finding that almost the, see the world in the way they're seeing it, right? Like sometimes you can climb the same route over and over again, but it's new for them. And, um, to be able to just sort of be in that moment with them is, is I think the best way to deliver that adventure. So, um, yeah, I don't, I guess what I'm just trying to, I, I'm not sure I'm answering the question, but what I'm trying to say is to, to be a good guide or to be the, a guide that I would consider what I would want to be is really about focusing on what that person really wants to get out of the day and trying my best to see it through their eyes so that I'm providing the right adventure for them and not worried about the adventure for me at that moment. <laughs> yeah, that can be difficult for us as guides to, you know, you're climbing the route, you're doing what you do and you've been there before maybe, or maybe you haven't. And, but you're having to constantly think of what's the perspective that they have and are they, are they scared? Are they wondering if they can do it or, and, and when you're, you're climbing, you're often not right beside each other too, right? As you get further away, you climb away from them and then you bring them up on the rope and uh, you might not have great communications with them. And it takes a, it takes a lot to, of foresight to give them some information, but not too much information before you leave them at a belay. And then uh, they're kind of almost on their own at that point uh, for a little bit as they climb up to you. 
Yeah, it's definitely a fine balance between how much information you provide for that person, for that experience, for what they want out of it. Some people love the unknown and and lots of challenges and other people just want to be outside and enjoying a day of slight discomfort, not <laughs> tons of discomfort like sometimes we enjoy in, in our own personal endeavors. So yeah, really trying to, to find that, that perfect match. I think I used to always be so afraid of, of um, not challenging someone adequately. Like I really thought that was almost what I had to like find the perfect match for. And, and then I've, I've realized over time that it's really not so much about meeting that perfect challenge as much as it is the whole experience of the day for them. And you can create excitement and adventure in the smallest things, you know, in what you see on your way to the climb or, um, as the sky is changing or whatever, <laughs> I'm not trying to get all, um, mystical here, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be just about the difficulty of the climb. That's for sure. Or the longest day ever either. No, please. No. Short, short, <laughs> shorter days and, <laughs> yeah, uh, and still be a great experience. Yeah. It, it is funny. I've talked to a lot of uh, guides and instructors who do feel that pressure to deliver that 10 out of 10 experience or what they rate it, would rate it as for themselves when really often a three out of 10 is, is more than adequate for their guests. And in trying to deliver that 10 out of 10, they can go too far and wear people out and, you know, and it just, it, it just ends up kind of backfiring sometimes. Yeah, that's a good point, Chris, for sure. It's funny, like there's so much to stress about as a guide. <laughs> there's, I mean, the whole day is a full stress of, of all sorts of hazards and the awareness of the weather and the environment around you. And then you're, you're also adding this stress of like really wanting to please your guest throughout your whole day. <laughs> you know, it's a lot, it's a lot to manage and really we only control so much of it. So it's just kind of funny how much energy we put towards things that we don't entirely control. I guess that's because we love our job and we're trying to do our best with it. I mean, I haven't really met a guide who, who I haven't thought, yeah, that's like, that's part of the tribe I want to be part of because I see the amount of passion they put into the job. I think that's why I always really was proud to be a guide and proud to be one amongst my peers because I just really admire and respect all the other guides I've worked with. You're a world-class climber known to be quite a strong climber uh and yeah i know you're quite humble but you are <laughs> an incredible climber and uh tell tell our tell our audience a bit about uh the types the different types of climbing that you do uh, what that involves and uh yeah and what inspires you to to climb what you do well i definitely love all types of climbing i remember when i was i don't know Fresh. My dog has some great size. <laughs> uh, um, I remember when I just got out of university and I, I was so in love with climbing that that's just, I had to be climbing all the time or I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I was really miserable actually to be around if I couldn't get my fix. I'm sure we all had that stage of climbing in us. Well, those of us who have climbed or who like climbing, um, 
So it started off as just a total passion for rock climbing and any type of rock climbing. I didn't care what I was doing as long. I just wanted to be like kind of pushing myself and trying new movement and failing a lot. I I somehow got, was driven by failure in some weird way. Like I loved success, but you know, you, you fail a lot when you climb. So that was a motivating force. Um, and then, yeah, I moved to Canmore and I became a rock guide, which was my dream. And I soon realized that you can only live that dream for like three months of the year here. So <laughs> you better find another career. Um, and dog walking wasn't super lucrative. So, uh, yeah, I learned how to ice climb and, um, I hated it at first. I really did. I thought, what's the point of this? Like it didn't involve the same type of movement as rock climbing. It was cold. I was miserable a lot of the time, but for some reason I persevered with it. <laughs> and then I, I fell in love with that. And I started to understand its intricacies and the beauty and, and all the different places it could take you. And the, it was a true adventure to go ice climbing. It was like, yeah, I started to really find, you know, find a love in, um, the whole experience of it. Um, so that I, I, you know, there's maybe not as many women ice climbing. I think that's changing a lot, but I guess, um, I guess because I loved ice climbing, I did it a bunch and it moved into kind of mixed climbing, which is when you try to get to a hanging icicle that the only way to get to that hanging little icicle, like the ones that hang off of your house at Christmas time, um, is to climb the rock behind it. And so it's kind of a weird sport, but you climb this rock with your tools and crampons so that by the time you get to the ice, you can climb that as well. Um, and that was kind of like... I think I really drew to mixed climbing because it felt safer, <laughs> safer than ice climbing. You could really only push yourself so hard on ice climbing. And, um, you know, if you are above your abilities, ice climbing, it could be, you know, super high consequence. And there's a lot more unknowns. But when you're climbing a steep rock face with bolts on it to get to a little hanging dagger, there's a lot more safety involved there. You're also under a big roof for a lot of it, so there's less overhead hazard. Um, so I think I just like that idea of of being able to push myself in the winter and um, and and try hard and have a goal in what I thought was a pretty safe environment. Um, so yeah, those are all kind of the types of climbing <laughs> that I love to do. Um, but I also just love, you know, big days in the mountains where you just ramble up something mellow and easy and you transition between rock and gl glacier and a snow face. That's a pretty sweet day as well. So I like fighting gravity for some weird reason. <laughs> and what brought you into climbing? How did you, when did you first start climbing and why, like what, what brought you into it? My very first experience climbing was... Um, when I was 14 or 15 on an hour bound course, um, which I, a guidance counselor in, in high school kind of suggested this outward bound course. And I just ate up the idea. I was like, this is what I have to do. So I saved up the money and my parents agreed that I could go. And I flew to Thunder Bay and, uh, did a three week, yeah, wilderness canoe trip. 
mostly outward bound course, but it had a couple of days of rock climbing where we got to, you know, just climbing with our sneakers and on some of the steep cliffs around north of Thunder Bay. And I remember being completely terrified. Like, I mean, as you should be when you're first hanging off a rope over a cliff, right? Especially with hip blades or whatever we were doing, we we're blaying from above and yeah. Anyway, um, maybe it wasn't hip blades. I'm not that old, but I mean, it felt pretty old school if I look back at pictures. Um, yeah, but I remember trying it and all the kids, all the girls were pretty nervous, but I, I somehow really liked the challenge of it and the wonderment if I could continue on. And, um, yeah. So after that, when I went to university and there was a climbing gym and, uh, other friends who were climbing, I just sort of naturally gravitated towards it again. And which brought, what brought you out to the West where the bigger mountains are? Um, I actually came to the West with my kind of like my, uh, university friend at the time. Um, she had a job out here and kind of invited me to come and, and, uh, I came in the winter and worked as a dog sled guide and, uh, you know, I'm sure we all know how it is when you first come to Canmore, you just work your ass off. Like you do whatever you can to make enough money to kind of live here and survive. I still remember using my biology textbook as a cutting board for that winter. <laughs> <laughs> that was really gross, but um, yeah, it was laminated just enough to work <laughs> as a cutting board. Um, but we survived the winter, and I didn't get into ice climbing that winter at all, but I did love the mountains, and I was like, okay, yeah, I've got to come back out here when I know how to make a living out here. Um, so I ended up going back to upstate New York and worked as a... Um, assistant director for the outdoor program for St. Lawrence University, started a climbing program and um, eventually applied for my assistant rock so that I could come back out here and try to make a go of it. And I went, once I came for that, I just never, never looked back really. Yeah. And you've worked full time as a guide instructor, sponsored climber ever since. Yeah, I mean, when I was an assistant rock guide, I still worked for Knowles in the States for a while, um, just to kind of keep building experience, and and I loved working for them. Um, but yeah, I guess pretty much ever since I've been guiding, yeah, and that's like, I was trying to do the math. It's, it's over 20 years anyway. I don't know exactly. Yeah. What do you like doing in your downtime when you're not guiding, climbing, instructing? Um, well, I love doing stuff with our kids. Rose loves mountain biking and Marie loves climbing, which I guess is still climbing, but we also like going hiking and I absolutely adore my dog. And so I walk her a lot. <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite things to do. Um, Your dog was imported? Yes. She's an import. She's very fancy. What, She's from Mexico. <laughs> what, what's her story? We're not really sure, but apparently we've saved her. <laughs> but you never know with these things. 
<laughs> um, but she's 17 pounds. And so she was able to fly as a carry-on um, from Cozumel, which is where she came from. And she's definitely, we did the little uh, DNA test and it, it actually came back with the highest um, amount for the breed of Mexican street dog, which I didn't know was a breed, but there you go. She's a Mexican street dog. <laughs> almost purebred. Yeah, almost purebred. <laughs> yeah. So, so she's what, um, I have this thing about dog rescue dogs. So I, I would call her a rescued dog because I've worked with a lot of rescue dogs who they, they're the ones who go out and find people under the snow and, you know, deal with, you know, earthquakes and finding people in collapsed buildings. That, that's what I call a rescue dog. True. So I, I would call, I would classify her as a rescued dog. <laughs> she may feel differently. <laughs> she might call herself <laughs> a rescue dog because she truly has rescued <laughs> my like uh, mood in the last three years. She's been awesome. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. She's got a purpose. Oh, she does. Yes. <sighs> Being based in the Canadian Rockies now, our listeners are from all over the world. Paint a bit of a picture about what's so special about the Rockies, what keeps you there. Obviously you go other places, but why do you, out of all the places you could choose to be, why are you there? Well, I mean, I'm looking outside my window right now and there's a beautiful peak right there and I've hiked up it a million times. It's Lady Mac and, but it never ceases to like bore me to look at or to venture on every time it's a different experience, even if it's just a hike. So then you add all the different climbs that are around here and the winter, they're always changing and there's a million of them. It's the Mecca to come to for ice climbing. I don't know. I just look out the door and I just see so much potential and opportunity. And even if I'm not the one venturing onto that new rock face to put up a route, I, I still find it pretty magical. Like, gee, I wonder if anyone's been on that before and what would that be like? And what's the work involved and is it doable? And I guess it's just that I, I probably will come back to that a lot, but the curiosity, there's just kind of endless curiosity here of, of what's possible and where you could go. And if you had a million lives where you'd spend them <laughs> in the hills here. Yeah. Sarah, why do you think we often associate the idea of climbing with adventure? It's that curiosity and the unknown. And often when you are climbing, unless you're climbing something that you know, well, you're curious about where, what you're reaching for and where you're going and you don't know. <laughs> and so the combination of those is, it's like this constant puzzle all the way up a climb or up a mountain. It's, it's this constant new information coming in that you're figuring out and working with. And, um, yeah, it's, I guess that's the definition of adventure. <laughs> Climbing fits it pretty damn well. No, I, I agree. My first job in, as a summer guide was working at an outdoor climbing wall, and it was pretty amazing to see all the, well, not just kids, but adults too, come out and and get an opportunity to do something that they, if you ask them, most of them 
didn't think that they would ever be able to to climb up a wall, and they certainly didn't see themselves as being able to go out on a, on a rope in an outdoor setting. What's your best advice to people who want to get into climbing to give it a try? Oh, well, I mean, nowadays climbing is, it's a bit mainstream, really. I mean, anyone can try climbing in their hometown. There's a climbing gym everywhere and that's great. (laughs) Like there's bouldering, there's rope climbing, I would say give it a try indoors first and know that it's a very different experience than the outdoors, but at least you'll kind of get that feeling of if you enjoy that movement and that curiosity and the unknowns of what you're getting yourself into. And then, um, yeah. And then if you like it, definitely seek, seek either good friends who really know what they're doing or a guide who can show you the ropes and, you know, just like anything, well, I'm one to talk because I, I totally jumped into it, but <laughs> I'd say, you know, just tiptoe into it and see what you see, how much you like it and be careful. It's very, very addictive. So <laughs> you might just fall in love and before you know it, you're buying a van and going on a road trip again. <laughs> <laughs> when you're teaching people to climb, what type of teaching process do you find works best? Um... You know, I really don't like to, uh, I don't like to over teach. I don't like to over explain because I, I don't like it when people, I mean, I like getting information that I need that's important. So like a bit of an explanation on how to maybe find a foothold or a handhold is nice, but then I don't know, half the joy in it is figuring it out yourself. So I like yeah, I, I guess I really like people to learn by experience as much as possible. And then I'm there if they have questions or they want the next step or they want my opinion or my perspective. But otherwise, I really like the idea of people learning from themselves as much as possible. Yeah, there's nothing like guided discovery to to give people an opportunity to to figure out things for themselves. And it can be hard, too, I find, with some sports where it is feeling-based. You know, you can try to give people analytical things to think about, but at some point they really have to go out and, and figure it out for themselves. And, and climbing can, can definitely be one of those things unless they can't see where to put put their hand for sure. I noticed that when I was at the outdoor climbing wall, it's like you, you got to the red one, you got to grab the red one, the red, no, the other red one, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> so you being a, you know, you're as you know, Jordy talked about, you're a very accomplished guide and guide examiner and that didn't happen overnight. What did the, the process look like to, to get to where you are now? Hmm. I don't <laughs> You know, sometimes you look back at your life and you're like, where am I? <laughs> really, all that time's passed by. I don't know. Sometimes it's it's kind of mind-boggling. Um, I still feel like I'm, I feel like I'm just 100% all the time in a learning role. So even if I'm acting as the instructor or an examiner in a course, I don't feel like I'm the expert by any stretch. No one's an expert in guiding. That's for sure. No one's an expert in climbing. Can only offer my years of experience and welcome 
other people's experiences as well. And together, we usually learn together. Um, how did I get here? I guess, I guess I really, really loved guiding. I really loved it. I, I guided a lot. Like when I first became an assistant alpine guide, maybe everyone does this, but I didn't say no. I just accepted anything I could. And I wanted to be working all the time, climbing all the time, and just soaking in as much as I could, like get as much experience and learning as I could get. And um, yeah, I guess that just, you're always trying to be better at it. And every day is a new, a new day with a new challenge and a new, um, new problems to solve. And now I, I, I just feel really fortunate that I get to kind of share that passion with people who want to become a guide and, and also kind of take that journey. <laughs> um, but I also, after, you know, that many years of guiding and some pretty hard, well, some very, very, very hard experiences, I, I can also share just the other side to them as well. And I think, I think that's important too, because it's not always all roses out there. It can be dangerous and it can be sad and it can be scary. It can be those things too. Do you have any advice for people who want to follow your footsteps and get into adventure guiding and instruction? Well, it's definitely a lifestyle. Like you make pretty big choices to, to be a guide that affects, you know, it, it could affect your relationship, your family. It's a lot of time and investment. It's a lot of time away. Even if you're not a ski guide, even as an alpine guide, you can be away a lot. Um, and sorry, my dog is really snoring here. I'm just trying to wake her up. It's okay for you. <laughs> um, uh, other advice I would give to guides. Well, just to, uh, to recognize that it's a huge responsibility, I guess. And I don't think you ever can fully appreciate that um, un until you really, really are faced with it. But um, I think just trying to have people recognize it all moments of their day, even though it's a great day and they're having a good time, they're, that's all good. They should just still always be thinking about um, everything that's around them. That's the number one. I, I mean, in my career of guiding, I was always like a, a major stress case. <laughs> like I could enjoy myself, but I mean, it, it's a stressful job and I'm always thinking of what's the worst thing that can happen in any situation. So I feel somewhat prepared. Um, but even then you can't fully prepare for, for those things. So I guess, yeah having people enjoy the moment, but also be hyper aware of what's going on around them. That would be probably the biggest, the biggest, uh, feedback I'd give a new guide. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. I had a lady, uh, once that I skied with and she was terrified of snowboarders. And then, uh, one day we were skiing and, and she was basically, she was skiing at the, at the speed of a, a slow moving turtle. And uh, she approached a, a snowboarder who was sitting on the ground, and she she panicked, and she got target target fixation, and she actually skied into the snowboarder. Wow. 
and then kind of lost her balance and her, the tail of her ski got stuck on the tail of the ski. And I'm standing right there, like, and, and, but I'm helpless. I cannot help her. And she has this funny fall and she ended up breaking her leg. And which was, which like, I totally did not expect that at all. Anyway, she comes back a year later and she was pretty driven. Um, she's a project manager and I think she was working on like an electric toothbrush or something. Anyway, she's a pretty driven lady and she goes back to her normal world and, and that sort of thing. And then she comes back skiing with me and she tells me how, um, you know, she had her cast on and she was driving home from work one day and she drives into the into the driveway and and unfortunately instead of hitting the brake she hits the accelerator and she drives into her car ruptures the gas line almost blows up her house and you think wow you know like one minute before she skied into the snowboarder i couldn't have imagined any of that right like it seemed like such like a like a normal situation and it ended up leading to this crazy, potentially life-threatening, property-threatening, you know, <laughs> situation in her life. And that can happen, right? Like these things we do as guides and instructors carry a lot of responsibility and even small things, they can, they can have big, you know, um, impacts in, in the long run. <laughs> it's a crazy story, Chris. Oh my goodness. So when your clients come with you and, and you see clients, you know, hiring guys, what do you think that they expect? Like, what are they looking for? Hmm. Well, I guess at this stage of the game, I mostly have return clients. So I, I think they're honestly looking for, um, the fact that I know them well and I know what kind of day they're looking for and how to hopefully challenge them appropriately and, um, and that we enjoy each other's company, <laughs> you know, like that's you're spending all day with someone. So it's a big part of the job. That's not like the job per se, but you, you enjoy being out there with these people, right? They're your clients, but they're your friends. And um, so I, I think most of my clients come back because they're psyched to catch up and go for a climb and and uh, know that I understand them as pretty well at this point and they understand me pretty well and that usually makes the day a lot smoother when you know your partner that well. Do you get an opportunity to guide and instruct many women? Yeah, a, a lot. I mean, primarily that's kind of what I focused my career on for a long time. I mean, I, I have a lot of awesome male guests as well, but, uh, yeah, I think women are often drawn to another female, um, mentor or someone to, you know, you see, I know for myself when I wanted to learn to surf or try a new sport, I, I sought out a female as well. It's just see them doing it. And I'm like, okay, that's possible for me too. Just in some sort of way like that. Yeah. Yeah, you see a lot of of women's only types of courses. You know, what is it that you think makes that appealing, you know, for women to be able to to participate in that space? Yeah, I mean, I know that, that there can be a lot of differing opinions on the women's only 
uh, courses. Um, some people feel like it, it adds more of a barrier than if it was a co-ed course, but honestly, for me, I ran a lot of them and I, I, the reason I ran them is because I found myself in that situation when I was 15 in that outward bound course, I thought I was going to be in a co-ed course and meet like the boy of my dreams. And we were going to go camping together for three weeks. It was going to be great. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my God, I'm with all girls. This is going to suck. And it ended up being like the best experience of my life because we just had to do everything. You know, there were no gender roles. There was no, the guys will start the fire and the women will, the girls will boil the water. It was just, okay, how do we get this really heavy old canoe over this portage and go back and get the other ones and, and do all that. So for me, it was, it was huge. I think for all the girls on that course, it was huge. Um, and so I really recognized um, in, in offering these camps that it just allows space for women to step forward. You know, sometimes if there's a co-ed group and who wants to do something, you know, it, it takes it takes confidence or it takes maybe habit or whatever to step out front and be like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll try it. And it um, it's often not the women, you know. And so on a women's course, it's a lot easier to step out front and, and make some mistakes and 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 um yeah and just try and and take on a leadership role that maybe they what, didn't want to take on what 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 is your what is your dog got to say about this subject <laughs> well not a lot right now now she's she was itching her ears but now oh there you go see you freya <laughs> Getting up. Okay. Freya, stop moving around. Ugh, funny old dog. Do you find that there's some teaching strategies that work better for, for women that they can relate to a little bit more than, say, say men do? Yeah. So two things. What I was saying earlier about um, getting more of a um, group decision-making you know, getting more involvement, which can be a slow process, right? It's uh, um, when you're trying to get everyone's uh, feelings or opinions about how you're going to proceed forward. But the reward in that can be a lot greater when everyone feels invested in, in what they um, are doing. And then the other one I would say is just in terms of feedback, how one gives women feedback versus men feedback. Um, I think is quite different. And you probably can appreciate that if you have a female partner at home that um, <laughs> often, you know, we really we really can kind of dwell on the negative uh, piece of feedback. And because um, we're often, you know, it's total generalizations here. I mean, I, I it's, it's horrible to generalize all the women and all the men. But in general, I would say, women need a bit more positive reinforcement to uh, that goes a lot further than saying, well, you could do this a little better and that a little better. And, and, and often the men really enjoy that. They want to know, Hey, how do I get better at this? And the women want to know is, Hey, should I really keep doing this? Is this, am I doing okay? Like, yeah. So I'd say those were two of the, two of the main 
things I think are unique or maybe different. Have you found some strategies that, that work, you found that work better for giving that type of feedback, that positive feedback? I think just checking in with myself before I give the feedback, like what am I trying to really provide for this person? Yeah, I guess just really thinking in advance, like what I'm hoping that they will hear from me with that feedback. You know, if if the feedback is really to, to help someone improve on something, then great. But if someone is already struggling with not feeling like they're doing a good job, then then being critical at that point, just there's no point to doing that. That's not going to help. So I guess trying to focusing on what's what's going well and then giving just a small thing of what one can still work on. It's funny. Some people want constant feedback all the time, and then some people will ask for feedback, but really what they just want is exactly what you're saying. They just want to hear that, yeah, you actually, you actually that was pretty good. Exactly. Right? And, <laughs> Chris, yeah. Right. And, yeah, and it, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll, I'll see people and, and I'll, I won't give them feedback. I'll, I'll first, I'll just say, so how was that for you? And they'll say, good. And it's like, great. Just keep doing that then. Yeah. Right. And then if they say, well, actually it wasn't very good. Then it's like, okay, well, okay. To make it even better, try this. Right. And, and there you go. But it, but it is really easy for, for instructors and guides to constantly want to like try to push it to be, to be better. And we think we're helpful and it's not even just us. It's, it's partners, spouses, you're doing it with your kids. Right. And we, especially if you have a lot to share and that can be, that can be kind of, um, can really destroy people's morale and self-confidence. Yeah. When I even think of like of myself, if I'm asking someone for feedback, or if I'm asking, let's say, Will for feedback, I, I or how am I doing with something? I'm generally seeking a positive affirmation, right? Like if I really want to be doing better at something, then I'll ask specifically, "Hey, you know, what can what can I do to be better at this?" But if you're just saying, "Oh, how am I doing with this?" I don't know. Sometimes those open-ended questions just um, yeah, figuring out what the person really wants to hear is maybe more helpful. When you're dealing with different people, you know, often, often I find that women, women tend to be a little bit more risk averse than men. Mm -hmm. Men tend to be, you know, Hey, let's just like push through this and, and tend to have a little, lot more bravado. How does that affect how you guide and, and teach? Do, do you, well, first of all, do you find that yourself? And if so, what do you do to manage that? Well, I mean, I would agree with you that there's a difference often with men and women's risk um, adversity. But at the same time, I've definitely encountered women guests who have a higher risk threshold than than men. So um I think it's it really comes down to educating what the real risk is and and the probability of that consequence. Again, that's the kind of equation of risk. 
and having that discussion with them. Um, I find in general, like the riskiest thing often is letting people lead for their first time. So, um, trying to minimize the consequence there as much as possible by just taking it really small steps and, and, uh, making it very attainable and building confidence slowly. Like there's no point in rushing anyone into something that's over their head for sure. Um, just trying to think more about that question. You know, I think people go into the mountains and they, they're, they're see, they want that adventure and they want, they want a bit of that risk. I mean, because going into the mountains is risky. There's just no doubt. Like there's just a lot of things you can't control with weather and um, terrain. And I don't think anyone fully goes in there and says, you know, I want like a zero risk experience because <laughs> that's just not possible. Um, and often I find my my clients or guests have more risk tolerance than I do, you know, maybe because I'm more aware of all of those things and I'm, they're juggling them in my head and they're like, Oh yay, we get to rappel down. I'm like, Oh, we have to rappel down. Like I'd much rather we walk off, you know, the classic kind of thing where you're, where you know that something has a lot more hazard than, than they do. And, um, yeah, so I guess it's trying to take on those mitigate those hazards and those risks all day without, it totally deflating their experience, you know, but having the honest conversation with them at the same time, saying you're, you're doing your best to keep this day as safe as you can. Sarah, you've done a lot of stuff in your guiding and instructing career and, and working as an athlete. Where do you see yourself going from here? What, uh, what are some of your, goals, aspirations? Do you want to keep, you know, building up the business that you're doing? Do you want to travel more and, and do more recreationally for yourself? Do you want to gain more sponsorship and, and, uh, yeah. be, be, uh, be, uh, you know, a, a role model for, for, uh, other climbers, other, other women. Like, yeah. Where, where do you want to go with this? I'm going to open a dog rescue <laughs> house. <laughs> no, uh, I wouldn't mind another dog. But anyway, other than that, um, honestly, Jordy, it's a, it's a good question. It's one I ask myself all the time. I don't have like a five-year vision right now. I think I always did and I don't. And part of that is kind of exciting and part of that's a bit scary. But honestly, in the last three years, I've really just followed where my kind of heart has driven me to, to go with this path that I'm on. And, you know, honestly, a couple of years ago, had you asked me if I would be guiding, I, I might not have given, I might not have known the answer. And now I, I know I still love guiding and I, I definitely love climbing for myself and I love the opportunities I have with sponsorship and with my partner and with my career, I'm super fortunate. And, um, I think 
I have found some other avenues. Like I've really enjoyed the work I'm doing with Avalanche Canada and just trying to create more, a bigger knowledge base on things that I've always been curious about. And uh, hopefully that helps, you know, future generations make better decisions. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really passionate about the mountain musk ox program that I've, I've helped create. And I'd really like to invest more time and energy into that. And, uh, I still feel like driven towards my own climbing for sure. And, you know, I've, I've had some injuries in the last couple of years and some, some, um, yeah, some, some hard, dark times, but I, I, I'm kind of hopeful that this winter is going to be a good one. I'm going to embrace some goals that I've had and try some, some, some more things that, yeah, I'm still just curious. I'm like, hmm, well, what else can I still do? You know, I'm still, I'm always curious about that. Um, yeah, so we'll see, I guess. Awesome. Well, and, there's and, a lot of stuff my, there. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and also just help the, help our daughters like focus on their dreams too. You know, it's cool to see that happening and put some energy in that direction as well. Instead of just always like, Oh, what do I want to do? <laughs> yeah. It's important. And it's, it's what ends up being the thing that fulfills us in the end. We can, we can chase, you know, personal success, but uh, it's how we affect the others around us. That's often uh, our legacy. Yeah. Thanks very much for this, Sarah. If you'd like to find out more about Sarah's accomplishment, her work, or if you'd like to find out how you can contact her about her guiding services, which I highly recommend that you do, you can learn more at her website, uh, sarahunnikin.com. And we have added this link to the show notes because her last name is a little hard to spell. So Chris, uh, when it comes to delivering a life of adventure, what are some of your key takeaways from what Sarah or said, or maybe things that might've come to mind for you during the discussion? Yeah, thanks, Jordy. There's a couple of uh, key ones that she mentioned. Um, she mentioned that she likes the idea of people learning from themselves, sort of the guided discovery approach. And I think that that's really uh, helpful from a coaching perspective. Sometimes we can get caught trying to overcoach and overtalk uh, people through situations when really we just need to let them go and have a, a chance to do things on their own and let them learn from their successes and and their you know and their mistakes. Um, so that was super uh, helpful point that I think she she highlighted there. The second one for me was the idea of always being switched on, and she mentioned how in some of these hazardous environments, risky environments that that sometimes we find us in and and to be honest with you sometimes in situations that aren't that risky uh things can change very quickly and we really need to be aware of our surroundings at all times especially when we are uh have that responsibility uh for other uh people and looking after them however she did highlight too that sort of that hypervigilance shouldn't come at the expense of uh, not appreciating the moment. And that's something that I think 
if we're not careful, uh, that can happen. And so uh, I guess the, the takeaway for me there is to be mindful uh, of the moment, live in the moment, be vigilant, but also to be able to take time to look around uh, to appreciate what, where you are and, and what, why you're there so that when you go away, you have positive memories as opposed to not remembering anything about the experience at all. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And that would be, uh, you know, in your guided day, your instructional day, uh, things like talk, taking breaks in safe places so you can actually have a little bit of a, a break yourself. So Sarah talked about uh, the idea of honest feedback versus positive reinforcement. And, you know, sometimes, like often people, if they're saying, how did I do, uh, you know, say with a, a certain piece of climbing or, or when you're out skiing or surfing, they're, they're often looking for like at least a little bit of positive reinforcement, um, not just criticism kind of right out of the gate. So consider, consider saying, well, that, you know, that worked well, or that was better than your last try at it. Uh, and then, and then roll into your, uh, discussion on, you know, and, you know, maybe if you put your foot a little higher here or you balance this way, um, you know, start to give them some, some tips and tricks. Um, but do that, uh, after a little bit of positive reinforcement, um, and, and it probably, uh, will get you, get people a little bit for, uh, farther, faster. Um, the other idea is looking after yourself first. So when we're out there, we're, uh, we're guiding, we're instructing, we're seen to be in a position of, of authority there, um, and, and knowledge and, and we have to kind of show that confidence there and so the, the way I like to describe this in emergency management uh, in my role doing that but also in guiding is that basically you have five priorities and the first three are me me and me it's actually that important that you are looking after yourself um, so safety yourself before service to others and then number four and five on your hand and it's easy to do because most of us have five fingers not all of us, uh, five priorities are me, 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 and then the clients and then others that are in the area, bystanders or other parties um, are kind of our top five priorities. Jordy, I'm really glad you highlighted that point because I think that that's something that uh, guides, parents, leaders, friends can make a mistake with because it is so easy to want to prioritize uh, the needs of others, especially when we're trying to share these amazing experiences. Yeah. And, and to bring it back to uh, what Sarah was talking about there with that uh, client who wanted to stop for lunch uh, instead of getting past it to a less hazardous area, that's kind of another example of that um, sort of highlights what you were talking about. Um, you know, that mind mindfulness uh, versus being uh, vi vigilant side of things. Um, and then uh, just, you know, basically saying, uh, I'm, I need to get through this myself uh, and get then get you through it, and then we'll take a break. That's great, Jordy. Now, let's turn it over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? You can share your thoughts, stories, or insights with us via our social media feeds or by emailing us. You can find our contact information at deliveringadventure.com. We have also posted our contact information in the show notes, as well as links to how you can find Sarah Hunikin. Also, before you go, 
please don't forget to follow or subscribe to this podcast through your favorite streaming service. This is how you can help us to keep this podcast going so that Jordy and I can keep bringing you more content. If you really enjoyed the show, please recommend it to your friends. Adventure is more enjoyable when you share it. We aren't quite done yet, though, as we have one last funny story from Sarah to share with you. Thanks for listening. I was like, I'm going to show this client the best day today. We're going to climb like all these routes. There's three routes in a row and, you know, they're all kind of two, three pitches. And so I'm like, I'm going to be really efficient with my rope techniques and uh, we'll get up one, we'll move over, we'll wrap that one and then we'll do that one. And there's another party there too. Um, and I knew them and... And, uh, they were also past kind of clients of mine. They were, they were coming to climb one of the routes. So I was like, don't worry, we'll be out of your way pretty quick. We'll climb this route and then we'll move over and we'll do the next route. And so, yeah, we make pretty quick work of that route and we get up there and I'm getting the ropes all ready and he gets up and I'm like, okay, you know, you just, um, <laughs> she makes the best noises. Uh, um, and so he gets up to my belay and I have all the ropes ready to go. And I'm like, okay, yep. You just untie and toss your ropes. And he kind of looks at me and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, yep, just toss them. He tosses them. <laughs> and I had, I don't know what I was thinking. Obviously I wasn't thinking correctly. I, I thought I had my ends through the anchor, but I had already put my ends down and I was going to take his ends and, tie them to the anchor. So I threw my ropes off of the climb <laughs> and I watched them go down and he kind of looks at me and I look at him and if he asked the obvious question, like, so is there a walk off? <laughs> I'm like, not that I'm aware of. No, there is not a walk off. So yeah. Then we heard some yelling from below and I called my friends slash um, past clients uh, who were below starting up the other route. And I'm like, do you mind uh, bringing my ropes up with me while you're coming up? <laughs> I, I, I gifted them very well that next night and I've always called them my like, you know, my angels after that because... Yeah, that was not just embarrassing. That would have been really bad had they not been there. But I, I don't think I would have done it, too, had they not been there. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, you kind of know you have this backup. And so you rush through some things. Anyway, we went through our phone apps and games that we had downloaded up there for a little while and had a good long <laughs> lunch. And we still got two climbs in that day. But, um, yeah, that's probably my most embarrassing guiding moment. And I'm not sure I'm going to let you use that, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're not the only one that's happened to you. Uh, there's a story, I don't know if you've heard about during a guide exam, uh, an oh. Alpine guide exam where uh, it was actually the examiner that they, they were, there was, it was started snowing hard on a Alpine rock route and they got out of exam mode and just were bailing off into a gully up at Lake O'Hara and, uh, the, the ropes got tossed off by the guide examiner, who I will mm. not mention. And uh, and one of the candidates watches this happen. There, there was three candidates and the examiner. And one of the candidates says, I'm the best climber here. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll down climb and get them. <laughs> and he down climbs in the snowstorm, <laughs> gets the ropes in the gully, brings it back up, and then they wrap off. Ouch. Yeah, down down solo, solo down climbs. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it, it, it happens. Yeah.